Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 million people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your host, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dressed listeners, this week marks the occasion of the 148th Kentucky Derby, um, which dates back... I know, right? (laughs) It dates all the way back to 1875, and the Kentucky Derby proclaims itself to be the longest-running sporting event in the United States. And not to mention, of course, for our intents and purposes, that it is a fashion event in its own right. And our American listeners will most likely be familiar with the Derby as an iconic showcase for headwear, millinery. Uh, The tradition for wearing bold and unique hats to the Kentucky Derby is part of the showcase and its spectacle, which is why we are so pleased this week to be joined by the featured milliner of the 148th Kentucky Derby, Christine Moore. Christine, welcome to Dressed. Christine, Welcome to Dressed. We are so excited to have you on the show. This is actually a topic that I've been thinking about and wanting to do an episode on for quite some time. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored. Yay. I'm super curious about your path to becoming a milliner. It is was, you know, 50 years ago, a very quote-unquote traditional female occupation But of course, as you know, the millinery trade has kind of declined in the last 50 years. So I'm curious about your path to becoming a milliner. And also, if you would tell our listeners a little bit about the business that you have here in New York City. I'm based on 34th Street and I I sell to store. My business model is that I sell to stores around the country and, you know, occasionally overseas, but mostly United States based. I design all all the hats, the collections. We have several collections. We have fall, spring. We have casual. We have fancy. We have men's called the Blake Collection. Let's see. I specialize in events as well. Actually, I should say we make everything in-house as well from scratch. We are known to make our own flowers, our own bows. So we don't really buy anything but fabric and mold it it together. Wow. I mean, this is an art form. (laughs) It is art form. Like you can hear some hats back just for you to see. Yeah. You can see how it's like these are pieced together and then I cut the petal out and then we mold it into the flower. So it's like the sky's the limit of what we can do, but it definitely is a, a body of work, of artwork. And then that touches on fashion. But I got my start in the theater. So when, um, when I was introduced to the Kentucky Derby, all, I call it theatrical fashion. And it's because you, uh, you have, you know, fashion trends, but then you have the theatrical event. So I say that my business model is to, that I sell to stores around the country, but I specialize in events because a hat always at this time mostly needs to have a place to go. So it could be a, a fundraiser luncheon or it could be, you know, church service like Easter service, or it could be like it could be horse racing. So because I come from the theater, it, it, it's easy to be an event business also. Yeah. 
That makes perfect sense. Where, where did you get your training? Okay, so then I studied costume design. Mm-hmm. And um, my first professional job as a um, costume assistant, costume design assistant, I met a milliner. And I was so enamored with the process of making hat of making a hat that I, I, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to just only do that. And that's how I find my staff. It's the same thing. Passion. It's passion. (laughs) And it's so, it's like anything can really, anything could be a hat is, you know, I often say, if you can get it under the sewing machine, it can be a hat, you know, and, but it's, it's that, um, it's that adventure of millinery of, it just like gets into the soul of the artist. And, and that's why I have, I generally, as long as there's artists that live in the city, which the pandemic kind of scattered all the artists away from the city. Generally, I have no problem finding employees because it's just so interesting, so challenging to be a milliner and, and there's a passion to it. Even if you don't wear hats, it's because some milliners do not wear hats. I mean, some of my staff are not hat wearers, but they love the craft itself. Yeah. All of my friends who are makeup artists don't wear makeup. Right. Well, and, um, and you know, how often is it that the, uh, like a designer is the le- least dressed person, you know, at the, <laughs> at their runway show. But, um, but to answer your first question about, you know, about hats in, over the centuries, you know, it's like from, I think it's 14, the 1400s up to like 1960, everybody did wear hats and it was a common job, just like you said, for women. In fact, you know, it was like prostitute and then milliner for many. <laughs> but what, what, and then, and yeah, actually it's, there's more stories to that, but we'll go. I just love that, that so part. much. You are, you're, you're not wrong. No, right. You would know this. I think you even touched on it at one, one of your podcasts. So anyway, um, then we go to the 1960s and a lot of those milliners, fashion milliners went into theater and were kept their passion going through theater. And then about 1990s was a whole crop, which I was one of them, a whole crop of young designers that wanted to be milliners. And so um, it started up again just because it was new. And I, I didn't remember people being made to wear hats. What do you say? Like, it wasn't a, a solid fashion trend when I was growing up. You know, my mom said when she was a little girl, she lived in Illinois. If she went to Chicago shopping with her mother, when she was very young, she had to wear hat and gloves. But then in her teenage years, she didn't. And she wasn't a hat wearer until I became a milliner. That was the point where hats be, were a mystery and they were alluring and they were new to that, to my generation. And then and then since then, I think that's why younger people are gravitating towards hats and they, and they think it's really exciting and fun because we don't remember, like, you have to wear a hat. You know? Right. Well, it's like extravagant. It's exotic. It's like this, like, you're making a statement. You were saying something. And I was actually just at the Met Gala yesterday and I was talking to Stephen Jones about this. And he was like, I think in the future that people are going to think that it's really strange and weird for the last 50 years that we more or less have not been wearing hats, that that people kind of stopped because the head has been like the site of human adornment for, for centuries. And I, I think that's very true. So let's let's get that magic back. Yeah, and I think one of the things about hat 
wearing is that it, it really does make you focus in on someone's face and their eyes. And to Stephen's point, like, I think that that is one thing, like the concentration of right here. And even like, it's funny. Cause I think about like people spend a lot of money on their clothing and it's Facebook. <laughs> it's like, who takes a picture of somebody's torso? I don't generally, you know, it's right here. And so, you know, I think it, he's right in the sense of it's like, what happened to the concentration about around the face? You know, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that people say hair took over. And I think in some ways you can see how that was a kind of hat, the way people were doing their hair. It, it's just when the hair went too. <laughs> yeah. And there's a reason why certain milliners, I think Lily Dashay had a hair salon in her boutique at one point, like in the 1960s, because she was kind of like trying to like float that wave of like the hair becoming the new thing. Well, yeah. And now I, um, in the last seven years, I have partnered with hair salons because, and for Kentucky Derby, for Del Mar, like different, different events, because they're having trouble too. So people aren't going to the salons. So it's like a twofold. And so it's like work with the milliner. I never thought that would happen. I always thought we were at odds, you know, it's like cat and mouse, but now it's like, oh no, let's do something together. Let's incorporate the hat around the hair. And, and I thought this is really interesting that hair, and cause I've been approached, not, I haven't approached these salons. And I, th- I think it's interesting that they realized that we were taking some of their business because mm. And I personally hate it when people say, oh, you wear a hat or my, my signature beret. Oh, because you're having a bad hair, hair day. And I'm like, well, n- not, don't, don't do that to us, <laughs> to, to milliners. <laughs> it's like the only reason I'm wearing a hat is because I have bad hair. You know, it's like, excuse me. <laughs> right. No, but I think that has become kind of like the party line at this point. Right. Because it's like, oh, you're, you're being extra because you're wearing a hat. But no. This is actually in the entire history of humanity. Yeah, exactly. No, it's true. Yeah. And I think about like, just for example, like a fascinator. So really the Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I were fascinators. Then it, you know, it bounces through time. And then it goes to like the, the turn of the 20th century. You know, the Victorian lady often had a, like a little hat perched on her hair and then you go to the 30s and the 40s and hats got smaller. And so the, that style is not new. It's been around for as long as people wear hats, have been wearing hats also. For any of our listeners who don't know what a fascinator is, could you define that for us? Uh, well, uh, the original term fascinator was from Ireland and it's just like feathers on a comb or a clip. But now we've expanded it out to mean like really trim the trim of a hat on a, hair, a headband or elastic that goes around the back of the head, by the way, not under the chin. <laughs> um, and <laughs> we don't, milliners don't want to torture people. So it goes around the back of your head. But anyway, there, and it's just really just a small hat or just the trim of a hat. And that's, and the fascinate it's fascinating. It's, it's the focus. And that's why it's called a fascinator. Mm, yeah. I've always loved that term so much. It's one of my favorite fashion terms. 
We are here, of course, today to talk about your work as the official milliner of the Kentucky Derby, which you have been for the last several years. Yes, first ever. And the term is actually featured milliner. Okay. There's a, because, you know, we had decided to do that, to, to have that title because there are a lot of local milliners that here. And so it's like, just, we're just the, the featured, not to, not to take away from, from the culture here in Kentucky. Yes, yes, yes. This New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> How did this designation as a New Yorker come your way? <laughs> well, I, you know, I worked with um, the Kentucky Derby since uh, 2007, just casually helping them build their brand. They approached me and wanted me to do some projects with them. Hat their national anthem singer, uh, actually hat the Kentucky Derby Barbie 135. I didn't even know there was a Barbie. This is like, yeah, <laughs> yeah there's making my heart need it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to send a picture of the one that we have in the office, <laughs> the official Kentucky Derby Barbie. And also, you know, we would do just, just for things just to help them build the brand because they liked where I, what they liked my style. They liked how elegant it was and how serious fashion it was. That's where it started. It was really just helping them build the brand. And my theory was that if I help them build the brand, then I'll naturally just be building my brand with them. And it, and it worked out really well. Until um, 2000, that worked out really well. <laughs> but in 2018, we thought, you know, we should really put a name to this partnership. So we approached them with the, the term featured milliner. And we had already been official milliner for the Breeders' Cup and for uh, the Iroquois Steeplechase in Nashville and different things. We had already made those partnerships. So we thought, well, why don't we do this with the Derby? And they were, they were up for it. You brought up like this really good point that I wanted to talk to you about. Like you do events for the most part or millinery for events. Why do you think that this association of hats still like kind of pulls through to the racetrack? Like what is it about the racetrack that that people still understand that there is a need for a hat? Well, yeah, because it has a long history from 1711, you know, in England. And so it just has been the look of, of racing and, and, you know, they call it the sport of Kings. Mm. It's not really that anymore, but it's like, I mean, it is in England, but anybody can feel comfortable at a racetrack. But the one thing is, I think the real key is that it's a long day, you know, and it's like, not like other sporting events where you, you know, you have like two hours to watch a game. It's really just like, it could be eight hours. Yeah even though the races are two minutes, like you could be from 25 to 45 minutes between races. So you have to figure out what to do in that time. So one, the track wants you to stay. So they have to figure out how to do that. But two, you want to stay. So you want to be entertained. So one of the things that has helped that is besides like great food and, you know, cocktails, obviously. Cocktails, yeah, yeah. (laughs) it's also, it's also people watching and, and the fashion. So it's like you, it's part of the entertainment. And, you know, even though like the shopping experience, like people now with me, when I'm at the racetrack, when I have my hats there, it's like the best souvenir. I call it the best souvenir of the races is a really great going home with a really great hat. And it's really stuck. Like people will shop for their next hat or they'll just swap hats 
during the day, get a new hat and, you know, pick up their old hat at the end of the day. You know, it's like part of the fun of it. Like it's that too, to shop for a new hat. So, and, and to join the fashion, there's almost always a fashion contest and it's filling up that time. And sometimes what's interesting is that I call, okay, the racing is the real entertainment and I'm the front of house. And sometimes there are people who come to the track and they never, they don't care about the horses at all. They don't care about the, the real entertainment. They just want to be entertained on, in the front of house, but it keeps the, like it could be a, a wife, it could be a husband or kids, you know, that, that are focused on something else. And then you, they are entertained while the, whoever really wanted to watch the races, can watch the races. Cause I find that women, especially men stay really focused on the races. They can really do it because of how, you know, the male mind is like, it can just stay, but women like to have a lot of interaction and a lot of like change up and multitasking, you know, <laughs> we're kind of wired that way. So that's one of the things is just like women have to get up and walk around for a while. So that's really, what's really important to the racetrack also, because it, they want it to be a family event. There are times that, and it, that will make it, that legitimizes a lot of the racing, the sport, because it can get kind of seedy and it can get maybe a little lowbrow, you know, if you don't have women coming to the track, you know, and women, and then with women, a lot of times children do come to the track and then it brings in a new generation and the fashion helps all that. And that's why Kentucky Derby was formed in the first place in 1874 was to change the fiber of racing in Kentucky, you know? So in this when I think in the like the twenties did the same thing, you know, made it very comfortable for women and, and families and children to come into the track and make it safer again. Yeah. You mentioned that you have partnered with other race events as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about some of those? Yeah. So um, the Kentucky Derby is by far the most fashionable and where you wouldn't ever think of not coming to the track with a hat. So that's the, that is the top. Then there's like Breeders' Cup, which is a very, um, it's like the best of the best of racing. So it's different than the Derby because the Derby is specific age of horse, you know? And this is where I, I forget. I think it's two-year-olds <laughs> to look it up. I don't know either. So you are the expert. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking, I know. I, I, you know, I, I always forget if it's two or three-year-olds. Um, uh, it's three-year-olds. Yeah. So it's that specific to derbies, like any derby. But then Breeders' Cup is like the best of the best in many different categories. It could be an older horse. It could be, it's, you know, and the Kentucky Oaks is the day before um, Derby, which is also a very fancy feminine day. It's when the Phillies race. It's girl power day. (laughs) (laughs) So that is an important race um, because they're both fancy and they've been branded that way, built up that way. Um, But that one day I, I described it as like the Kentucky Oaks is the really feminine day, um, but just as fancy. And then the Kentucky Derby is more like contour, elegance, serious fashion, you know, on Saturday. But then Breeders' Cup is along that lines. It's an international race. Um, it, it, it's more of a fascinating fedora type of um, dressing, but it's also very couture because it's the best of the best. So it's a smaller race days, but it's, it's more specifically to racing where 
like you have to be really a race fan to to know about it or or go to it for the most part where the Kentucky Derby is more mass and then there's the Iroquois do their steeplechases you know also which are that's the turf and they jump over uh they have a lot of jumping and so that's all over the country as well and um and also of of course in the south it's uh addressing event yeah I love how there is, as you have just described, this sort of like etiquette of understanding the specific context of the event and the specific type of hat that needs to be worn to it. That's amazing. Yes. And that's why, you know, one of the things I found, if you don't do your research, and this happens to celebrities a lot, like if you don't do your research and for the Kentucky Derby, you will insult a Kentuckian. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's like you have to know who you're, where you're going, what the culture is, and what the what your who your audience is. You know, <laughs> it's like, and I, you know, hat celebrities up all the time, and their stylists are thinking, you know, Los Angeles or New York, and and it's like that's not it. It's not. It's it's, it's a language. It's a language. Yeah, it is. It is. And so it's like I would, yeah, it's like. Uh, so you can go to the Kentucky Derby website and find um, the rules of like the, the rules of dress, like what is expected and do that research. And you can see, you know, what is the standard. And I always say like, I, my hats are very expensive. So I think like we're setting the bar, but you can, you can find that look at any price point, you know? So at least you need to know like what to wear, what the standard is. And, and that's true for the other races too. It's like, um, do your research before you attend. And because they're all very different, like, you know, Preakness is the second race of the triple crown. So Derby's the first, then Preakness, then Belmont. As we get, go up the coast, the, the style changes, you know, you go, so, Kentucky Derby is Southern Bell. And just like Maryland is the, where Preakness is, is a middle state. You get like, you still have feminine, but you have, it's smaller brims. It's a little more straightforward, like um, maybe less bright colors, uh, navies, and you know, obviously, gold is always big in <laughs> uh, Maryland, and red. But saw more primary colors. And then you get up to New York, and it's like it's very chic. You know, it's chic fashion. It's less frill frill and and more clean lines. And so interesting to see how like the different events yield different styles. Mm -hmm. I always think about this every winter when we all get on the subway living here in New York City, where we're all on the subway and you look around and you're like, everyone here is in black, navy, or gray, like everyone. And then like, if you go to Miami, (laughs) if you go to Miami and just get on a plane and go to Miami, that is not the case. And I've always thought that that was so interesting in terms of like, it's almost like a camouflage effect. So like if you're in a warmer climate and there's like beautiful trees and beautiful flowers that are like super bright, you're like feeling like you need to be in that space. But like if you are in this urban concrete jungle that you and I live in, <laughs> yeah, you're wearing your black. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of the things I found out about Kentucky was that coral is a neutral. <laughs> oh, this is yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it was like, and I remember when I, how it started was that what somebody introduced me to a Kentucky a Louisville store, 
and they bought my work. They bought my fall collection. And, but they said, um, we really want you to, we can see, they could see the talent. They said, we really want you to make some derby hats. And I'm like, this New Yorker goes, oh, fancy hats. Okay. You know, I, I, even though I came from the theater, I've been, it had been beaten into me from the fashion district that people don't wear fancy hats as a, as a whole. It has to be sporty. Yeah. You know, fedoras for women, feminine fedoras, berets, you know, but don't, don't think you're ever going to sell fancy hats and become anything more than a little tiny milliner. Right. So, uh, I, when I went down there for a trunk show and I had these two, I tell the story all the time. They have two pink, I did a spoke at this luncheon. There was two pink hats on top of the rack that she forced me to make. Right. And <laughs> at the end of the, I heard somebody say in the audience, I am not spending that much for a casual hat. Cause I'm going on about how, you know, skincare and, you know, you want to cover your face and how it's, you know, it's style, it's chic. And, and yeah. So this woman says, I'm not spending that much for a casual hat. And then I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, this is not my customer. What am I doing here? Right. So at the end of the speech, all of a sudden, these, all the women come running up to these two pink hats and start fighting over them. Like, can you make, can you do special orders? Can you do, you know, can, what, you know, can I get, I love this style, but I want, you know, and that like the light bulb went off, you know, snapped on. And I thought, oh my word, I get this market. And then the next year I went to the Derby and I, and my eyes were just totally open and went, oh my gosh, there's, there is a market for this, you know? So whenever New Yorkers come to me and they say, or Northeasterners, and they're like, I'm going to the Derby for the first time. And they pick up like, I don't know, like a hat like this one, you know, just like a floppy hat. And they're like, this is what I'm going to wear. <laughs> and you're like, oh no, that is not the language. <laughs> yeah. And I always say, okay, you, the, the worst thing you could be is the plain girl at the Derby. And I, I cannot let you do that because you may never return again. If it's a one shot, your fashion will ruin your day. Mm. And uh, so many people have come to me the following year, like they'll say, not, they get a hat somewhere else. And they'll say, these, I mean, these women are brutal. Okay. <laughs> I mean, every, every, <laughs> I mean, I thought the fashion district was brutal, but <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, every little circle of women have a little contest going. <laughs> well, I remember specifically this one woman said, I was voted a C. Uh, can you make me an A plus? And I was like, okay, wow. doing it. Wow. It's like, it, but it's true. It's all over the track. Like there people are, are judging each other for what they're wearing. And uh, what, that's why I always say to the fashion magazines, when they call out stuff and I'll say, hey, have you ever thought about covering the Kentucky Derby? Because that's where your fashion is going. That's where it's going. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they've ever covered it, but hopefully they will. Someday, <laughs> maybe they'll do a shoot editorial. What does an A-plus hat look like for the Derby? Okay, so an A-plus is, I would say, well, elegance is the number one thing, mm-hmm. definitely. But an A-plus is when you've got elegance crossed with boldness. And so you have something about the hat that is oversized. This is specifically derby. That is oversized. That is like, that packs a wow. It could be color. It could be a long feather. It could be a fabulous bow. It could be a, you know, a flower. Um, We do painted flowers. It could be just like the painting on the flower. So something is oversized. It makes the, the photographer stop and take your picture. It makes your audience stop and they have to turn their head and stare at you, but in an admiring way. It's arresting. It needs to be arresting. 
Arresting. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, and so one of the things that you don't want to do is you don't want to overdo though. So you have to know a mill owner needs to know when to stop. Yeah. That seems stressful. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes. And you know what? I'll back to one of the things I did want to address that goes back to another question that you had. The Gold House, which is a hotel down here, and it asked me to do a retrospective on 146 years, this was in 2020, of the Kentucky Derby. And in my research, I, what I found, and this goes back to the history of hats, what I found was, was that people came out in their Sunday best until about the 19, I'd say 1995. And they, it would just be like, yeah, they wouldn't go over the top or, or crazy like they do now. You, it, the wow factor wasn't a thing until like 1995. It's, and I think it's because hats did die out. And so when they came back with my generation making hats, because it was new and different, you wanted to go crazy with it. And, the fa- and I think then it, the hats caused the dress selection to up, the shoe selection to elevate as well. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I think it's really interesting. Like, I love this connection that you have to performance 
and your understanding of performance and how millinery fits into that. I think that's probably really at the core of your work. Yeah, it is. It's theatrical fashion. It, it, and I, we do a casual line and, and it does so well. <laughs> but it's really what I'm known for is that theatrical fashion, is the event of it. And like just in the turn and, and my theater background and my staff too, they're all theater people. And it's that like, it really, the question is, who is your audience? Yeah. And what is the stage for it? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So you've mentioned a couple of times that some of your event hats are expensive. Can I ask a bold question? Where do they start at price point? My least expensive hat now is probably 500 and or uh, 450, 450. And goes up to like, well, the sky's the limit, right? <laughs> I think right. The, it's like, what do you want? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the most expensive hat I've ever made was probably like 5,000. Mm. So, but I'd say the sweet spot is like 600 to 900. Well, and that's all that hand work. Like everything is being done by hand. Like we can't forget about that. Fast fashion has completely wrecked everyone's expectations of what things quote unquote should cost. Yeah. And it's a, it's a major problem. It's very interesting because I do, um, when I do research, I do a lot of like quote unquote historical currency conversions. And so I, I have like, apps that will take a price point from a certain year and then tell you what it would be today. And it's almost always the same, which I think is very interesting within the history of fashion. I have done the conversions of hats like from the 19 teens to now that were like with the crazy ones with the feathers that were like insanely expensive, sometimes as much as someone's jewelry that they were wearing at the time. And it always kind of like ends up being exactly equal. So I've always thought that that was super interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, I believe it though. You know, just just even the history of current currency, would that make sense? So can you tell us anything about specific pieces that you have created for the Derby this year? Or is this top secret inside information? Oh, no, no. Um, not now. <laughs> it's out. <laughs> you know, I've been doing a lot of painting on painting in detail on our on our flowers specifically. And I've also um, developed this fused flower. So I, we always use silk because it has the best, mm. this is the best look. It, it has the best it, it body. It floofs. It floofs. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's, and it's sustainable. You know, it will, you can, fl- you can pull out a hat five people tell me all the time, five years later and it looks like the the way they put it away you know and which is I think it's just the natural fibers so we've been doing this fused flower that has like um that uh, allows me to actually mold more the shape of the flower we usually bag out like bag if all the sewing people know this (laughs) but you know we'll cut the pattern sew it together, bag it out, and that'll be the petal, and then we'll paint into it. But the, we're doing a lot of like fused flowers that have more structure, have a, I can have more structure that can stand up and they're bolder. And then painting into that or outlining, which you can, you can see this on the website. And again, it packs a wow in an elegant way without being ostentatious. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain color palette or trend that you see people wanting oh my gosh. right now? I would say anything bright is the trend, but specifically, um, 
I would say orange, uh, yellows, green, which is my favorite color because it's like the stem of every flower is, is green, mostly. But it's like intense chartreuse, which is another one of my favorite, which I wish I could wear it, but I can't, you know, but I love it. Chartreuse has been really popular. Uh, lavender has been popular. I have to, I think anything that's celebratory is popular mm. right now. But one of the things about doing a millinery collection is that it has to be very big. And because you have to match it with clothing. And I, one year, maybe like 15 years ago, I tried to make a very streamlined collection and, you know, keep it down to like my actual collection can be from 80 to 120 pieces. Right. But I was thinking, thinking, oh, I'll like the clothing designers, some clothing designers, it's very small. So I thought, okay, I'll make a small collection. Well, it ended up, it doesn't work that way with millinery. So my color range is very wide because I have to match clothing. Mm-hmm. But I have to say overall, like greens, yellows, oranges are the, are probably the most popular. And pink for oaks, you know, the Phillies Day, the Kentucky Oaks is, it's also breast cancer research, they're fundraising. So that's also tends to be, uh, I'm, I can never have enough pink hats, never have enough. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, that makes perfect sense because like, I think every woman on this planet knows that feeling of when you're like, oh no, those are the shoes or that is the bag or that is the hat in your case. Like you feel it, you know, like you just know. So. Right. Yeah. If any of our listeners would like to learn more about your work, where can they find you? Okay. My website is camhats.com. It's C-A-M-H-A-T-S.com. So you can go to the website and you find out about our collection, my history, And then if you, but if you want to know more about the Kentucky Derby, the Kentucky Derby site and the fashion, they have some good pages. I have a little section on their website too. Mm -hmm. And you can find out about the fashion. And, you know, one thing we didn't talk about, but I think that even if you don't go to the Kentucky Derby, one of the things is you can have a Kentucky Derby party at home. Yeah. And dress. I mean, I know that we've done a lot of things at home in the last two years. So it's like, it's way better to go to the Derby, (laughs) but, but I think that one of the things that to those who, and your listeners are people who care about what they wear and about dressing every day. So this is just, you know, this is one, one way to live a life is to have a Derby party and, and dress. And I mean, I, I encourage people to, to have their own party. And men, you plan your bourbon cocktails. Oh yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, look up the. I'm sure. I'm. I'm sure that the Kentucky Derby webs, website ha- lays out the entire way to do the Derby party. But there's also fundraiser parties all over the country that are Derby or that are Derby centered, and um, even to go and watch the race uh, at one of those parties is an excellent thing to do if you're not going to go to Churchill Downs. Yeah, this was so lovely. Thank you. Christine, so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, I've been wanting to talk to somebody about the whole derby, hat, millinery, like aspect of it for a really long time. So I'm I'm glad that we got a chat today. I got to, I'm glad I got to be the one because I really love your show. And I it's such an honor to be 
part of it. In fact, I can't wait to tell everyone <laughs> to post it that you got to <laughs> listen to. I mean, yeah. And the, the, and the person that turned me on to your was one of my employees and um. so a past employee. So I can't wait to tell her. Um, yeah. And if you ever, if you ever have any other questions, I'd love to be on again, or just even like answer it from a milliner's perspective. No, that would be awesome. I mean, like I, I probably will have some weird technical question about something at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, one of the things I found though, that I think helps people who, and why your podcast is so important is the history of it's human history, uh, how people dress in just even different countries than and I think that one of the things about my staff, about theater people, is they learn costume history and we all can speak the same language. And I think that that's so interesting and, and fun uh, uh, just coming from the theater rather than fashion. Because I don't sometimes I, I don't think fashion and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think history of fashion is always taught. So that's why I think in fashion school and in fashion design it's always more, more modern and, and, and forward thinking rather than the past. So that's why I think your podcast is so important and your involvement at FIT. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for saying that because like, this is actually something that Cass and I realized very early on in the first year of the show is we thought that we were going to get more of like a fashion follower audience than we did. And that was not the case. So. We know who our audience is now, but it but it's not like the cool kid fashion crowd, more or less. And we're like, oh, this is this is interesting. I think that says a lot about like where the state of contemporary fashion is at the moment. So yeah, it yeah that makes sense. I bet you have a lot of listeners from the theater world because history of fashion is so much a part of that world because you have to recreate it, and that's why. I- everybody in my staff, like even past staff and forward have listened to your show because, I mean, I keep calling it a show, but podcast because of that reason. It's like, that's one of the reasons why they went into costumes in the first place was the history of it. Yeah. It's that question, why or how or who? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Christine, thank you so much for joining us to chat about your work and the long history of millinery. April, as you know, we've talked more than once about the racetrack as a showcase and a showplace for fashion historically. Long before social media, public events like the horse races were the place to see and be seen. And that legacy really lives on today in events like the Kentucky Derby. It certainly does. And I also love how Christine pointed out that it's not just the Kentucky Derby, but also other races like Preakness and Belmont that follow after the Kentucky Derby. And that the millinery that is quote unquote expected of attending each of these is a unique language for each event. And this kind of proves what we always talk about time and time again on the show, that fashion and dress are one of the most basic forms of human communication. Absolutely. And I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider adding a top to your tet next time you get dressed. As always, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com or you can DM us at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you soon.
Dress, The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.